whether it's farming or whether it's calling on expires or cancels or whether it's working your database. You're, there's, there's something to do every day if you find it to do. It's up to you. You can't wait for the phone to ring. You got to get out there and kind of make things happen. Nope. I always tell the brokers, nobody can call you off your for sale sign or your business card if your sign is in your trunk or your business card's in your wallet. It's impossible. So the question is this, how do most agents find the secrets to succeed in today's competitive real estate market, especially when the top agents are keeping those secrets to themselves? That's the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. Hi, I'm Aaron Amuchastegui, and welcome to Real Estate Rockstars. Hey, real estate rock stars. This is Aaron Muchastegui, and I'm interrupting myself to bring you this commercial break from one of our sponsors. There's somebody I've been looking at for a long time, and when they reached out to me, I said, yes, we have to be able to do this deal. So that sponsor is Follow Up Boss. There's a lot of superstars out there that use Follow Up Boss. What's your favorite CRM? We're using Follow Up Boss. We use Follow Up Boss. So we use Follow Up Boss. I love Follow Up Boss. I love it. We have action plans now for bringing on new agents. We have action plans for our recruiting. Uh, we call them action plans and follow-up boss, which will trigger tasks for the agents to do as far as calling. Follow-up boss, I like more for the integrations with everything, MailChimp, call action, all those different products. I will say we used Sync and we switched from Sync to follow-up boss. Honestly, the greatest CRM I've ever used, I've used Brivity Sync. I've looked at Boomtown like Real Geeks, just a bunch of different ones, but me personally, I've fell in love with Fub about like seven months ago when I first started using it. I've used Boomtown, I've used Line Desk, I've used Conversion, and I think Follow Up Boss gives you the most integrations mm-hmm. that are simple, and it gives you the best ability to go and integrate large things into one single solitary platform, yet at the same time, it's still affordable. I do like Follow Up Boss better just because it you can text from the app and things like that. It's just a little more convenient for me. Um, it tracks everything that I need. I can customize it if I want. If I want to go smart list based, that's fine. If I want to go task based, it's fine. I think it's one of the best systems and it's very user friendly. It just really helps me never drop a ball because it's so user friendly. I don't have a one horse in the race with Follow Up Boss. Purely objective, Follow Up Boss has been the best one that we've found. Now I've used Follow Up Boss. We've actually used it in our non-real estate businesses as well because it's so good at being able to set timers, set automatic texting and emailing. So here's what we got. For Real Estate Rockstars listeners, get a 30-day free trial. That's normally 14 days. So in order to get this, you go followupboss.com, just like it sounds, forward slash rockstars. Go there, get your 30-day free trial and check it out, especially if you aren't using any systems or any CRMs yet. This will be a great one for you to start with. Thanks again. Now back to our show. All right, real estate rock stars, welcome to the podcast. This is Caleb Spears. And today I've got the pleasure of interviewing the wonderful Dennis Folk. So Dennis started his company, Terrafin Real Estate in uh, in Washington. I'm not even going to try to say the, the, the town name. Can you pronounce that for me? It's Puyallup. Yeah, don't worry Puyallup. about that at all. Yeah. Okay, phenomenal. So Dennis started Terrafin Real Estate in Puyallup, Washington in 2017. And in just three years, he conducted 631 closings to total $258 million in sales. So an extremely fast start out of the gate for their brokerage. And um, he's had over a thousand transactions in his business, which is in excess of over a quarter of a billion dollars just in personal production, all in his early 30s. Uh, so he's got an extremely strong track record today. There are, and this is, and this, you can update me if I'm, if I'm behind the times here, cause I'm just reading from a, a publication that was done on you. There were 10 people on the team at the time this was published, eight agents, and then yourself, and you guys are pulling in higher than average revenue across the board. So Dennis, welcome to the podcast. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about you and your team. Awesome. Thanks, Caleb. I really appreciate it. So I I actually got started at age 19. Um, I didn't go to college. I knew almost right away, just kind of college wasn't for me. And and one thing I try to hit home with people, when I started, it was 2006 and the market was kind of heading into a recession at that standpoint. 
I was super young, super broke, had nowhere to go, but, uh, but one thing I think is important four years, I waited tables for four years and there was a lot of times I was totally ready to give up. There was actually one time I was literally like age 20 or 21. I literally started bawling in the office. Um, just, it was tough. It was really hard to make it. And I really think that recession and that market shift is actually what helped me survive because there was a lot of agents, you know, the agent count was really high. There's a lot of agents getting out of the business. So I think to a big aspect, I was able to take advantage of that and talk to a lot of these agents and get their referrals as they were sort of forced to, to go out of the business and go into a different profession. I was able to kind of scoop up a lot of their business. I was like, hey, you've got nothing to lose. Like, I mean, I've got nothing but time. Let me help you out. So that market shift probably allowed me to keep going and stay in the business, but it was definitely a long-term game. Um, I worked at several different restaurants. I was probably terrible at all of them. Um, but yeah, so our office now, Terrafin, um, we were a team beforehand at a privately owned firm in the state here of Washington. We were a team for probably a good two to three years. Let's call it two and a half. A primarily sell new home communities for regional home builders out this way. The team was really probably eight to 12 people on average, depending on how many communities we were selling at that time. In February of last year, we broke off to just be an independent firm. And at that point in time, we really, or I really switched gears into, we're still going to sell new homes. It makes up you know, the bulk of our revenue, but we're going to switch gears into more of a traditional real estate firm and recruit as fast as humanly possible. And our goal is sort of to really spoil the heck out of any of the brokers we're bringing on. Uh, recruit fast, heavy, hot, whatever it took to get people here and really never give people, which I know is an impossible statement to make, but give, give people no reason to ever leave. So when we left as a team, we had 12 brokers and um, our goal at that time was in under five years to do half a billion in sales, which is big for us. So that would, that would you know, on average, maybe 75 to 80 brokers or each of those brokers doing about 10 million in sales. So we're at about the year and a half mark. I think as of today, I, I want to double check the numbers. We're at about 42 active brokers. And I think this year, if we finish really strong, we can come really close to that 200 million mark for, for what would kind of be our almost our, our full second year in business. That's phenomenal. Congratulations on all that success. Awesome. That's amazing. Thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely. I love too that you started at 19 because I started, I got licensed technically at 18, but it was like okay. a month before I turned 19. Yeah. Um, and I worked at a Chick-fil-A, which I don't ah. know if you have those in Washington, but <laughs> we do. We do. Yeah, absolutely. I my love pleasure. That. That's yeah. <laughs> I still carry that with me to this day. That's like their thing. It's my pleasure to serve you is their their motto yeah. for all their employees. And anyways, yeah, man, being young in real estate. Yeah, I, I was just like you. I wanted to quit probably once a month for the first two years. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. probably cried several times. Yeah, totally. But it's hard. It is really hard. It literally it took me five months to make my first sale. I don't know if you yeah. were as slow on the ball as me. How long did it take you? Six months. Okay. It took me six Same. months to close one deal. And I think in my first 12 months, I may have closed, I want to say 10 to 12. So I came out a little bit stronger, like the second half, but it took me six months to close one transaction. Yeah. So what was, I mean, for me, my knowledge base when I first started was so low, like yeah. I, I've saved it in my phone all this time. The very first lender I ever talked to, I put in next to their name, financer. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. I didn't know what they were called, man. I was, just, yeah. I was like, they finance things. I guess they're financers. I don't yeah. know. Like, that's how low. Yeah, like that's how low the, the bar was for me. So it probably took me six months just to figure out, you know, what was up and down to sell a house. I mean, yeah. was that kind of similar for you, that learning curve? Yeah, totally. I mean, there's so many stories. I mean, so I was waiting tables. So like, I remember being at a table, like taking an order and I could feel my phone like sort of buzzing in my pocket. And I'm like, crud, that's probably like a lead. And I'd literally leave the table, walk into the walk-in freezer in the restaurant and like, hey, this is Dennis. Yeah, of course I can be there tomorrow at two o'clock. Yeah, you got this in another meeting now. I'll call you back. I literally one time got fired on the spot for taking a work phone call in the parking lot. You name it. I mean, I was out showing homes where the, my car was literally getting low on gas. And I literally didn't know if I stopped to get gas, like, would my car actually work? Like, I literally had, you know, you're coming from nothing. You had nowhere to go but up. And um, 
So luckily, I did have quite a few people around me. My family was in construction. I think your family was too. Uh, my family was all uh, quite a few members in real estate sales. So that sort of helped. And I definitely fell back on that as like some base level of knowledge. I think you did a really similar thing. Um, so, so that kind of helped, but yeah, I mean, I had a big fear that I was like, do these people know, like, I've never bought a house. Like, I remember in my head, I was like, I've never actually like gone to escrow and signed anything. Like, you know, so all, all those things, a hundred percent. Yeah. My dad was in construction. So he's a GC. He's been a builder for 25 years. He's a survey and engineer. Like he, he's everything with a house. My dad has done. He's got his real estate license, GC, all the things. And um, I wish I could say I brought a great base level of knowledge with me into the business, but I didn't pay a ton of attention to what he was doing on a day-to-day basis. Like I cleaned his job sites as a kid. So I kind of understood, I guess the only thing I brought with me was I could look at an unfinished house and and understand the floor plan pretty well because I used to clean his job sites, but I really didn't learn a good deal about houses until I built my first one. That was a huge okay. education for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a struggle. So first year you get the ball rolling, you're, you're starting to catch fire a little bit at the back end of year one, but you said you waited tables a couple years into your career. So what did those next few years look like for you? You know, it was really just figuring out like, like, can I, can I make a living off this? Like, can I predictably at least sell one home a month? Can I, am I busy enough to do it? Cause, cause you know, you would have a decent two or three months. So you might have a story like, wow, like, I don't know if this is actually going to work. Like now I've gone two or three months and haven't closed anything. Like I was really hoping to be done with waiting tables. Um, yes. Yeah, so I think it was just that. And, and the market was super sketchy back then. It was really hard to, I mean, just the inventory. I, w- I literally want to say in our area, it was like 10, 12 months of inventory. I mean, it was, it was bonkers. Um, but yeah, I think it was just that. I think once I hit almost that four year mark, the number for me back then was I could sell, I could predictably close one home a month, which at the time was like $5,000 a month. And also the bigger thing for me was it really got to the point where someone would want to see a home, but my shift at the restaurant started at like that time. And I was like, crud, like, I can't keep doing that. Like, this is too painful. Like, I got to give like my notice and, and just make the jump. So I think it was just part of that. Probably some of it was probably in my head, but yeah, it was definitely, it was, I was in it for the long haul. No doubt about that. Yeah, I love the persistence for sure. Because this, there's a. Have you ever read Atomic Habits by James Clear? No. Uh-uh. Okay, highly recommend it if you ever have time, even if you just yes. audio book it or whatever. But one of the things he talks about, so he studied, he he became an expert on experts basically. Yeah. And one of the things he talks about is everybody when they look at a success and they imagine themselves succeeding in an endeavor. It is like a straight linear path where you just get a little better and a little better and a little better. You keep going up. And he said, the reality is it looks more almost like an awkward U shape, a parabola. If anybody remembers their, their 10th grade geometry class. (laughs) Um, But he said, there's a gap between where you think you should be. And, and that, that initial point of learning you're, you're below the line of where you think you should be, but then you hit this point of competency where you just, exponentially grow and you way exceed what you thought you would be. Obviously, I mean, you've closed a thousand transactions. You've done well over a quarter of a billion dollars in business. For me, I was pretty bad at my job for at least two years. So (laughs) now I've done, I've done probably $130 million so far. Um, and, And so there was obviously that exponential growth for both of us. What do you feel like were some of those lessons in the beginning that led to that, that faster growth towards the back end of the, uh, you know, those first few years? You know, I think a lot of it was just investing for the long term. So, so back then it was really common for deals to fall apart, like, or for listings to, you know, not sell or they, they would just expire or, you know, inspections to go south, like people couldn't get financing. So I think having a long-term mindset and when things fell apart, people really remember how you treated them. And when things went south, so I always just had that same attitude. It's like my, my professionalism or my service is not going to change regardless of how this transaction goes. So actually, I think on this podcast, I heard a gentleman named Elliot Hoyt mention that price point does does not, or service does not have a price point, I believe was his quote. And it really like hit me. I was like, wow, that's what it is. So I think that's part of it. I think another aspect that I would say is that it was really common for people that had been in the business much longer than me to really like shoot down some of the ideas I had. Um, and just kind of be naysayers. And sometimes they were probably right. Like some of the ideas probably were pretty stupid, but a lot of them, like, 
who cared? Like if I wanted to try things that may not have made me a ton of money or, you know, may not have been what they perceived to be the best use of my time slowly, but surely I passed almost any of those people I can recall that really doubted me at the time or told me my ideas were stupid. So I think if I could go back, I'd listen to them even less than I did at the time or take their opinions less seriously. Yeah, I think that's really good. And then, so, so fast forward, cause this is something we were talking a little before the podcast. I'm so yeah. curious to hear as you've scaled, I mean, a thousand transactions. Yeah. That is not an insignificant amount. That's a lot of volume. How many yeah. deals are you guys doing a year? So I wrote, I checked some numbers this morning um, just to kind of get in preparation for the podcast. So the office right now has about 42 agents, uh, 40 pending listings, pending sales, which means we're just representing the buyers, 24. Active listings is 40. Close year to date is 108 for about 61 million. Um, with an average of 565,000. So we're, we're a bit more listing heavy than I think a lot of the other, we're probably the same as a, a large team or a smaller, you know, pretty productive firm. We, we favor a little bit on the listing side with that. Um, but my mindset has really shifted a lot in the last couple of years of getting out of being in the trenches and doing so much production to focusing on just trying to grow the office, which is really exciting and a really fun part of it. So um, challenging, there is no magic ticket to recruiting. I have not figured it out, but it's a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, it's just that, just growing and and having a lot of fun doing it and making mistakes along the way. So what are some of those those systems on the back end? So you're like, hey, I, I don't want to ever give an agent a reason to leave my company. Most agents just want to focus on production. They don't want to have to do all the headaches on the back end with PR, marketing, admin, all that stuff. So I'm sure you've probably got some systems in place given the amount of volume you do. What did some of those systems look like that have allowed you to scale? So the systems would be not completely different, but but two totally different types of systems for when we're selling a new home community. That's an animal in itself with its own very unique systems that, that wouldn't necessarily totally apply to a standard kind of traditional firm. With the traditional brokerage side of things, for the, the busiest person in our office uh, this gal named Michaela, I, I got to kind of give her a shout out because she's been so freaking busy. We figured out that that a lot of brokers sticking point was marketing and marketing is a really broad term. OK, like what does marketing mean? Marketing can mean a lot of things. It can mean just a really nice social media post, maybe a really nice video that's already done for them is on tap for them. Or when they request it, it just gets texted right over them and they can post it. And they don't have to think about it. They don't have to go buy Canva. They don't have to figure out how to get the logo on it. They don't have to figure out what to say. They can just literally post to all their social media outlets and move on to the next thing. But it's more than that. What if they're doing an open house? What if they need flyers for their open house? What if they need flyers for a listing? There's a lot of people that would come into the office and be like, hey, as bad as it sounds, I just need a lot of help with like my email signature. Is there someone that can sit down with me hands-on and log into my email with me and show me how to get my email signature up and running? So we feel like that was kind of a, a point where a lot of people struggled at other firms to get hands-on help. And, and that goes a long ways with people, just hands-on help to where they really felt like the firm cared. And the fir- firm had somebody on salary that was dedicated to caring about you getting through those things and not having to think too much about them. Yeah, 100%. By the way, shout out to Canva because I love Canva. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, do, I make a lot of stuff off Canva. I love it. But it is it is time consuming, especially in the beginning when you haven't like played around with it long enough to understand. Yeah. There is such value, especially from the agent side of things, just being able to grab and go. Yeah, um, That's been huge for us. So we recently transitioned to Compass as our new brokerage. Oh, yes. I noticed that. Yeah. So we founded their 30A brand here. We were with Sotheby's previously, which we loved Sotheby's, but um, Compass has a platform that's very similar to Canva, but it's grab and go. And it's I mean, yeah. I can make a clean social media post in like two minutes. Yeah. And it's so helpful. And to hear that you've got someone on staff that's just doing that for people, pumping that out. That's incredible. Um, such a huge value add. And then on the administrative side of things, do you have any assistance on salary or any, any uh, transaction coordinators that you use? What's your process there? Yeah, that's a great question. We're actually pretty lean and mean on that side of things. We obviously have a full-time managing broker 
we're in the process. She may have actually kind of started already an assistant managing broker just to kind of help Holly the, uh, handle the volume and the onboarding process is pretty, pretty intense, especially for those first like 72 hours. We have a bookkeeper, um, but really other than that, people have the ability to either use paperless pipeline on their own, which is our transaction management database or system, I should say, or they can, it's up to them. They can hire a transaction coordinator at the office. So we have a couple of transaction coordinators at the office that stay pretty busy, but it's, we leave it up to the broker. If you want to pay more and have that service, you can do it. This person will take care of everything for you, handle a lot of the paperwork, handle paperless pipeline. You don't even need a login to, to mess with that. Um, yeah, but right now I imagine we're going to continue to grow and have to add more people, but we're really pretty lean and mean. I mean, I'm talking, you know, two and a half, maybe three full-time staff members. That's really smart, actually. We So I was on a, a statewide meeting on Tuesday, and they were talking about how do you stay nimble in a shifting market? How do you, how do you gain market share in a shifting yeah. market? And one of the things they said was, try to stay lean to mean. If you don't yeah. have to put them on salary, instead, you can have a per transaction basis like you're talking about. That allows you to take your dollars and go put them into some ultra beneficial marketing platform that's going to really yield market share because shifting markets, that's where market share is made, baby. Oh, 100%. 100%. I love it. What's your, what are your thoughts on that, by the way? Because I mean, obviously the US is in a shifting market. How do you, are you guys in like, hey, we want to gain market share mode or, or what's your thoughts? Yeah, I think naturally I'm always kind of have that mindset in terms of market share mode. Um, gosh, I don't know. I think people just have to kind of get into the mindset of prepping their sellers ahead of time to what what the market is, where it may be going. You know, a lot of brokers probably aren't used to having a dialogue with a seller in terms of price reductions or listing extensions. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, with us, we're, we, you know, a lot of money can be made on the buyer representation side, but but to us really to gain that market share and to gain more public perception is really on that listing side. That's really where I like to focus and really where I think the long-term referral-based businesses are built. Um, so yeah, I think gobble up market share as fast as humanly possible. And we're doing that in a couple of different ways, but one is obviously aggressively recruiting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I agree with you too on like Jonathan, my brother, you were, you were referencing earlier. He, he always talks about listings are king yeah. in the marketplace. Like that's he who has the listings runs the market because you don't, it's not just, so first of all, all the signs in the yard, that's all free marketing, right? That's all powerful, genuine organic marketing. And then, you know, what every buyer and you know, every agent that's got every buyer because they're showing your listings, they're telling you, Hey, this is what I'm looking for. If you're asking those questions, right? That's the key. And that's something I want to talk to you too. So you're talking, you're saying, hey, a lot of agents don't know how to have those awkward conversations. Many of them are newly licensed. They haven't had to have those conversations because they've been in a hot market. There's been no need for price reduction. Not to give away the secret sauce, but what are, can you go through some of that scripting or maybe just some tips on how to have some of those uncomfortable conversations? Yeah. And to be honest, first off, I don't have a secret sauce, but... I think with that dialogue or almost any dialogue, me personally, I think it's just not letting the client be surprised. So I think if you're, if a client thinks it's worth more and you're unable to talk them to the, the list price you really recommend, but maybe their price isn't totally out of whack, prep them a little bit. So let's go on at this price. But if we don't have anything in two or three weeks, let's reevaluate. And as long as you kind of warn people and prep people a little bit before you have to have that real hard conversation, that real hard conversation is not a surprise because you don't want to switch all of a sudden to being, hey, everything's perfect. Like, actually, we need a lower $50,000 because they can be really caught off guard and just react completely differently if you hadn't kind of planted that seed two or three times weeks prior. So I think just having that, you don't have to dominate them with that or, or barf it down their throat. But as long as you kind of, that's a part of your dialogue is that, hey, if it doesn't sell, here's our plan. We don't have to do it today. Maybe we have this discussion in a couple of weeks. Let's see what, what happens with that. But I think don't let them be surprised. So when you're in a listing appointment on the front end and you recommend a pricing strategy, a lot of sellers, especially in this market, I don't I mean, at least in my market, I don't know if you've experienced this, but they'll be like, hey, I, I really respectfully, I think that's low. My yeah. house is the cat's meow. I need 10% higher than that. And you're yeah. thinking, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a stretch. Um, do you have that conversation then and there with them or, or how do you handle that? You know, I don't. I know everybody does theirs different. 
so a couple of things with me when I go to a listing appointment, I do like to ask them, and some sellers are really reluctant to give it. 99% of them have an idea of what they think their house is worth. They've talked to their neighbors. They've seen other signs in their neighborhood. They've looked on, on some websites and gotten some ideas there. So I personally really like to get an idea of just at least what ballpark they're thinking. After I walk through the house, I like to go back and do, and this may be the second CMA at this point, but I like to go back to the office, do a full CMA now that I've walked through it in person because I think it makes a tremendous difference. And then I recommend my price or what 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 I believe the current market value to be. And, and no matter what, I, I feel like every once in a while I'll actually lose a listing by giving too conservative of a price, but I'd really rather give a price. I'm really confident I'm able to back up um, and not be kind of just eating my words to get the listing. So uh, I always recommend that and say, you know, if you want to go at a, at a higher price, I understand. This is definitely my recommendation. If they're somewhat close to me and are not a couple hundred thousand off, we'll definitely proceed in listing that property. But at least they knew from the beginning, this is what I had recommended, but I wasn't a jerk about it. And I didn't make them feel bad for their own opinions. But um, And a lot of times if they're at 600,000, your recommendation was 515, you're probably going to get the listing at 540. Maybe you didn't get them all the way to 515, but at least you're not starting at 600 because you gave them a good, strong, you know, sort of accurate assessment. And there's always that time a couple times a year where a seller wants more and I really don't think it's worth more. Every once in a while, I'm wrong. So I really like to be careful on how I word things and, and I don't tell them they're wrong or, or I'm right or that they don't know what they're talking about because every once in a while, I am wrong. So I always want to be respectful with that conversation, how I give them feedback based on what they think it's worth and what I think it's worth. Oh, hundred percent. I've, I learned that the hard way I've lost <laughs> literally, dude, I, I like it's burn in my memory. I lost this $2 million sale that sold first week on market. Yeah. Because it was right as the market was starting to go ballistic with, with the, the post COVID acceleration. Yeah. Thing. And I, I told him, Hey, it's probably worth like one, six, five. And yeah. respectful. And it was, I mean, I, I was, convicted based on past sales that that yeah. was the yeah. fair value of it but the market didn't give a darn what fair value was yeah. <laughs> so this other agent just saunters in and goes well, i'll list it for two million i thought that'll never sell <laughs> first week on market oh my gosh oh it was the worst but yeah Okay, so so something I'll do on the front end there is if, if we're way off on pricing together, I'm like you. I've I've learned from that mistake. I'm I'm not gonna turn it down unless it's just crazy yeah. egregious and I know I can't sell it. But I will say, hey, respectfully, we're kind of far apart here. I'm gonna shout this from the rooftops. I'm gonna do everything I can marketing-wise. I'm gonna call all the agents. I'm gonna be very proactive with this. But if in 30 days we've had showings and no offers, or even worse, no showings and no offers we're overpriced. Yeah. And I'll have, I'll plant, like you're saying, you'll plant the seeds. I'll yeah. kind of plant that seed even as we're agreeing on pricing. And if, if a seller's like, Hey, I don't, I don't care. That's a red flag for me. Yeah. I mean, how do you feel in that, in that scenario? Yeah. I mean, some of that, that feedback from the seller, when you kind of plant some of those seeds is pretty important. You know, how do they react? If they're like, Hey, if it hasn't sold in 30 days, I'm just canceling the listing. You know, so that might be like, Okay, I got you. On the other end, too, every once in a while, there's a seller that says, hey, I really want to be at this price that maybe you or I would think is just way out of whack. If that seller says, hey, and by the way, I want a broker's open every weekend. I want it open two to three days a week in terms of a general open house. I want, you know, A, B, C, and just kind of spells out what would, what would you know, sort of turn into a gigant, gigantic marketing effort. That might also cause you to pause. It's like, you don't really want to commit yourself to to a seller that's got extremely high expectations with a, with a, you know, uh, maybe a really bad expectation in terms of list price. So those things might be important too, just what their expectations are and if they're going to drive you crazy or not. Okay. So on those time wasters, because I feel like it, at your level of experience, any agent that's been doing it that long has bought into some time wasters. Yeah. 100%. 100%. <laughs> and, so like what, would you say letting go of, of some of those clients that have really high expectations, even if it's like a, a really shiny penny, it's a really high listing or something. Have yeah. you found that that's been beneficial for you to just pass on some business so you can be ready for more? You know, I would like to think I'm better at that. I think where I try to do is somewhat meet them in the middle and sort of in, in the moment kind of counter what they're saying and say, that would be really cool. That's not a bad idea. Here's what we're going to do automatically. 
you know, here's kind of what we have lined up for the first 14 days and just see how they react to that. Make sure they're somewhat reasonable. It would take quite a bit for me to walk away from it, but if it was a situation where the seller wanted me personally, not even someone on the team to maybe hold multiple brokers opens or multiple open houses, unless it was just a crazy high price point and a really good, you know, in terms of the commission, a really reasonable commission, there is a decent chance I might walk away from that. I don't encounter that situation too often. I'm usually able to sort of handle it and kind of roll with the punches a little bit, just based because I've been in so many of those appointments. But yeah, it would take a lot for me to walk away. I'm sure I've done it before, but. Yeah, I, um, I don't. I, so with open houses in our market, it's such a second home market that they're very hit or miss in terms of their effectiveness. Yeah. And a lot of times with sellers, I'll say, look, we're glad to, if, if someone's really demanding like that, yeah. I'll say, we're, we're glad to hold it open. No problem. But just so you know, the, the dirty secret of the real estate industry is open houses are generally better for me as an agent than they yeah. are for you as a seller. That's a great so, way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So the statistic I share with them is uh, on average, 1% of homes nationally sell because of the open house. Yeah. So it's like, hey, a 99% chance. This isn't going to lead to a sale. Yeah. I'm going to get a lot of leads from it. So I've got no problem yeah. holding it open, but that kind of softens their mindset a little. So that way, if it's unrealistic for you to hold three a week there for whatever reason, <laughs> maybe you can back that out to like one a week. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. Kind of counter it. Yeah. But I guess every once in a while there's that seller that's like, you might want to, you know, but uh, yeah, hopefully I don't encounter too many of those, but. Yeah, hundred percent. So in recruiting, I'd love to hear because we're trying to grow our team right now. We've, yeah. we've got a, a humble team of ten agents compared to your forty plus. So what what is some of your strategies for identifying the right talent? Is it a sales threshold? Is it a cultural fit? Is it a combination of all those things? You know, ours might be a little bit different from yours. And even when I was running a, just our team before, we really only sold. I mean, for the most part, the vast majority of it was just for regional home builders selling new home communities. So we only recruited on an opportunity basis. If we had a new home community opening and we needed a new, you know, maybe one or two new people to, to sit that model home and, and work on that project for the next year, we would only recruit for that project. We didn't really generally recruit at all unless someone just sort of fell into our lap. So now since I opened in February, this that'd be February of 2021, recruiting has become uh, a big effort. And I really enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. And at first it was going really good. And I was kind of like, man, like this is, this is kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. Like this is, this is fun. Like I had no idea it would be this easy. And then all of a sudden I was like, whoa, okay. Like now it's a lot more challenging. Like after you kind of got your initial wave of people, like now you really got to work for it. So we, first of all, I don't have a metric sauce. I wish I had something that worked for everybody, but that has definitely not been the case. We, we, we try to hit them with, you know, some of that marketing stuff, we feel like new brand new brokers can really have a challenging time because I've been there, you've been there in the business in terms of what kind of actual hands-on support do they receive in terms of forms, in terms of training, because that first two years is really crucial. So we really try to pitch. We've got a lot of that. We always run a high number of listings. So if they're interested in doing open houses and kind of hoping to capture buyer leads that way, we do have a ton of opportunities for them. One thing we've shifted into for experienced brokers or we can, you know, in this sense, determine that they're not going to be too problematic, but also they're going to produce on a, on a consistent kind of reliable basis is we've gotten into paying signing bonuses. So we'll get pretty aggressive with that. If it's the right type of broker, we will not hesitate to cut a check. And there is, there's always some risk with that, but with us, it's, we feel like it might give us a leg up on the brokerage down the street. Um, especially if we can determine if this person closes maybe one to three deals, we've already broken even and we're not worried about that anymore. And maybe you've got them for two years, three years, five years, or 10 years, because that's where the real money's at in terms of recruiting. So you guys might be really more specific on who would be a good team. What talent are we looking for, for our team, or we're just generally recruiting. It would be really rare. We would turn down any broker. I think to date we've lost two. We hope to get them both back and we've asked one to leave. So we're casting a pretty wide net. We have a lot of brand new brokers. We've got some real experienced ones and a lot of people right in the middle somewhere, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. And I wish I knew the most consistent tactic with it or what worked the best because I haven't figured that out. No, that's awesome. There's nothing wrong with the volume model for sure. Um, So with a lot of new agents, this is something that I'm running into right now. We're, we're trying to train these agents and, and, uh, 
it's almost like every one of them needs something different. You know, yeah, hundred percent. So how do you, how do you tackle that with a volume model, having a lot of new agents? What, what's kind of your training methods? You know, a lot of that, what I've learned and observing a lot of these people at a really close distance or just being in the office and being around them, a lot of that, I have to say, sort of also falls on to the new broker. It's the new brokers that show up and and more or less just by their presence and their enthusiasm and their energy and their attitude sort of demand the leads that come to the office and demand like the knowledge and want to do ride-alongs on appointments and make it to every training. So we can recruit new brokers that are blue in the face, but if they don't show up and they're not going to be engaged and not going to be pretty committed, it's really tough no matter what brokers they're at for them to make it. So yeah, we do do weekly trainings. Uh, we have a mentorship program we implemented. We're going to start to do a in, outside of the weekly training where all new brokers would get together for a second time during the week to work on forms or dialogue and just other struggles they're maybe all going through. But other than that, I think it's also trying to line up as many opportunities for them. Because I don't know about you, but I could take a forms class till I'm blue in the face, but until I have to actually use that form in a transaction, I, I'm likely never going to learn it. So if they're active and they're, they're energetic and they're kind of taking the opportunities we're trying to give them, those are the ones that are going to succeed. Yeah, I, I've definitely seen that before where I will see someone that I really believe has so much potential to be great in our industry, but they're, they just don't want it that bad. Yeah, it's hard. That's one thing you can't teach. Yeah, and, well, and they'll tell me, they're like, oh God, I wish, I'm just so busy. And I'm like, if you were as busy as you say you are, you'd be selling things. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I don't yeah. know what you're doing with your time, <laughs> but it's yeah. not the right things. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, there's, I mean, brokers all the time and some of them will come in they'll go, okay, well, I'm going to be here. I'm going to hit it hard Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I go, well, what are you doing Tuesday and Thursday? Like I'm here every day. What are you doing? <laughs> you know, if you, there's always something to do if you want to do it, whether it's farming or whether it's calling on expires or cancels or whether it's working your database, you're, there's, there's something to do every day if you find it to do. It's up to you. You, you can't wait for the phone to ring. You got to get out there and kind of make things happen. No, I always tell the brokers, Nobody can call you off your for sale sign or your business card if your sign is in your trunk or your business card's in your wallet. It's impossible. Ooh, preach. Yeah, so get it out there. It's, if you want your phone number, you got to find ways to get it out there. Yeah. Oh, I like that. So we always talk about the three Ps. Most real estate agents do the three Ps. They, they put the property in the MLS, they put the sign in the yard, and they pray someone calls them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and uh, we always try to be more proactive than that. So, like, if I have a new listing before the signs even in the yard, as soon as the ink's drying, I'm calling agents that I know might have a buyer. Or better yet, if I've got my own buyer, you better believe I'm calling them. You better yeah. believe I'm sharing it with my team and, and coordinating in house to try to sell things off market because there's no better value proposition when you're on a listing appointment than hey, we close 33 percent of our listings. Yeah, market in house. I mean, that if you can, if you can get to a point. Yeah, like you can get to a point like that, or even if it's 10% of them, that's a powerful. Oh, it's huge. Well, I think one thing that you just mentioned that really stuck out to me was when you got that, get that listing agreement signed and the sign goes up and it goes to active, that you really kick it in the gear and you really get to work. But I think where that goes the furthest is with the seller. I think the seller, six months later, a year later, who's he going to refer? He's going to refer cables. He's like, this guy never stopped working. Like he got the listing, he didn't just stop at that and go on to his next one. Like he worked it and worked it and worked it until it was sold. That's who's going to remember that. And that's where future business is going to come from. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes the toughest clients end up being my best referral sources. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. They test my limit and they're like, okay, yeah, he's, he's going to do it. <laughs> that's a good point. The referrals come from the strangest places. That's a good point. Yeah, they do for sure. Um, so for so this podcast gets a lot of new agents or even people that are thinking about getting into real estate yeah. um, listening. So for almost from like a training perspective, what are some of those key tasks if they're like, listen, I'm a, I'm a stay-at-home parent, right? I've got three or four hours a day I can commit to really working. I believe someone can build a business in that amount of time if they're hyper-focused on the right things. What would you think some of those key tasks are that new agents should be committing themselves to? You know, I think I would probably try to focus on just a few things. And these are all things they can do to their low budget. Um, they have to do them consistently. There's no doubt about that. But there is no reason why they can't start to farm a specific area, why they can't take maybe the neighborhood they live in. Maybe it's a neighborhood that isn't currently being farmed by nine other brokers at the same time that many people have forgotten about. 
get a list from the title company, hit these people with something once a week, right? Whether you're door knocking, you get something on their door, you mail them something, a personal handwritten letter, you send them a postcard. If you do something with these people once a week and you do that for eight months, there is no way you're not at least getting a phone call for quite a few of those listings. There is no way it's not happening. But that's the crazy part is how many new brokers are actually willing to do that? How many of them will sit down? It doesn't cost you anything, really. I mean, the cost is extremely low. Um, the other thing I, I, that I'm kind of more surprised on, which I myself you know, should lead by example and do a little better job with, but why are you not, you know, you'll see new brokers do sort of a welcome post or just share a post here or there, whether it's on Instagram or Facebook, whatever you're doing. Why are you not doing four or five posts a day? That's so easy. Why are you not doing that? Why are you not going out and touring homes and saying, look at me, look at what I'm doing. If you want to take a look at this home, let me know. Just showed this home. Just, you know, wow, saw this piece of land. This would be a great place for this. You know, why are you not broadcasting it out there to everybody? This is what you do every single day. So I think it's just a lot of those activities if they just, you know, can get busy. And when they get hard or get discouraging or it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere, that's when you got to keep going. That's where almost everybody else fails. But if you can keep pushing ahead and just doing it, you'll eventually fall out on the other end. Yep. I, I really think it goes back to that um, that thing we were talking about where most people think success is going to look like this linear line. Yeah. Right? But so what he calls that gap is the valley of disappointment. Yeah. Because in the beginning, you're just, you're doing so much learning and you're not seeing a lot of results. Yeah. You think about playing an instrument, right? You imagine yourself playing this cool song on the radio or this beautiful piece of music that you love. And you're struggling just to play a chord. And you're yeah. like, oh my God, I've been doing this for two months. I should be better than this. I quit. Yeah. But yeah. if you kept going a year from now, you're going to be shredding that guitar yeah. or that violin, right? Yeah. And it's the same in real estate. And I yeah. think the reason a lot of people give up on those weekly campaigns that you're talking about or those daily social medias is because in the beginning, you might suck at them, honestly. Like you might oh, make it totally first. <laughs> You might yeah. not know what you're talking about, or you might have a funny camera angle, or you know what I mean. But you get better and better and better if you yeah. just keep getting the. You gotta put in that work every single day. They, um, when I when I first got in, I figured out right away I didn't like calling people, like calling expireds and cancels, and, and some people make a killing off that. But it wasn't for me. I was like, if I have to wake up every day and do this, like this is just not going to work. So I, I thought to myself, how do I flip the script and get people to call me? Like, how do I do that? And, and in my head, I was like, man, I do that by getting my name out there. So how, well, I don't have any clients. I don't have any listings. Like, how would I do that? And at the time, the market was shifting. So agents were kind of falling out of the business. The listing count was just jumping on like a weekly basis. So I went around to everybody in my office and I said, hey, would it be okay with you if I advertised your listing? And I said, let me show you what that looks like. I went out with like probably the only like $100 I had at the time. And I bought a bunch of these really cheap, cheap uh, strip signs. I had those and a staple gun. And I went to every broker that had like probably five plus listings. I was like, hey, would you care if I put my strip sign across the top of your sign? If somebody calls me and I sell them something, I'm going to give you a 25% referral. Like eight out of 10 of those brokers said, I've had it. Like the listing's not selling. And it shows the seller that like multiple people are working on it. And like I, I could definitely benefit from the more exposure. So my goal was, how could I get my name on 35 signs in like 60 days? That was my goal. Right. And I did it. I went like way over. I got only 45 or 50 signs all around town and my phone started freaking ringing off the hook. And I would go to the appointment and people go, Hey, I think I, I saw your name down on like A Street too. And I go, Yeah, you did. They don't know it's not my listing. And if they asked me directly, I wasn't going to lie, but it gave me more confidence. It made me realize because, you know, you and I both start really young. It doesn't help if you look, you know, like you're 19 <laughs> and sound like you're 12. I still you look know? 12. Yeah, so. you look great. But uh, so that was my key. And before you know it, over that first four or five years, I no longer had to do that. And they turned into my listings. But that was my goal to get my name on as many listings as humanly possible and actually just tattoo my name all over the county and get my phone to ring. I want my phone to ring around the clock. And that, so that was my goal to, to do that. What a fascinating strategy. That is so cool. I've never heard of anybody doing that before. I mean, that's brilliant. Like seriously, yeah brilliant i mean you're you're breaking ground there with that i love that there's gonna be some agent that's like they're gonna be inspired they're gonna go do it and they're they're gonna sell 30 million they're gonna call you <laughs> i hope so i'm serious but okay so here's one crazy thing for you there was i want to say it was nar but it may have been a different group that did this study and they they invented a fake real estate agent 
Yeah. They, they targeted a farm area and they asked the farm area, they surveyed every owner in the neighborhood and said, Hey, if you were going to list your home tomorrow, who would it be with? And they all, you know, 80% of them named like the top broker and then the other 20% named this or that person. Well, they took this fake agent and they started marketing them once a week for seven weeks. And, and, and they tried to touch them seven different times you know, throughout the course of a week with maybe a billboard or a picture or something, right? And then direct marketing posts once a week. They called back at the end of the seven weeks and they said, hey, if you were going to list your home tomorrow, who would you list it with? And like 80 or 90% of the farm area says, oh, my God. oh we list it with the fake guy. <laughs> and they had, no, they had no clue. Yeah, so it shows it works. And that was only seven weeks. I mean, imagine if you did it for, you know, eight months or whatever the case is. But there is, I'll, t- I'll tell you a quick story about a broker in our area I kid you not, he was literally the number one broker in, in the Seattle King County area. I don't know if he still is, but at the time he was. And he was like year over year, just extremely consistent production. This guy came to the office every morning. It didn't matter if he had 10 appointments that day. It didn't matter if there was like a tornado outside. It didn't matter what was going on. He came to his office, he locked the door, and he called every single expired listing in there. And he had his dialogue down. He knew the neighborhood so well. He consistently ran like 40 to 50 active listings at once. But that's what he did before any chaos happened, before all, because you know how it goes. Once the day gets rolling, I mean, it gets chaotic. You can't do those things. But he beat everybody to the office. He shut off his cell phone. He used an office phone. He locked his door. It didn't matter if it was 30 people or 100 people. He called every single one of them and consistently got listing appointments and consistently got listings that way. So there was probably three or four years ago, I had a house for sale myself and it fell off the market. And that day, like the next day or whatever, I probably got 45 phone calls from brokers. But guess who the first person to call me was? At like 6.15 in the morning, it was him. And he didn't, obviously didn't realize I was an agent, but I was like, damn, like that guy is consistent. That's what he does. He does not care what else is going on. He treat, that's how serious he took it. And to his credit, I mean, he was, you know, his volume was just incomprehensible. That's incredible. I mean, expires like that. You're, you're farming some hard dirt there. Yeah. Absolutely. And he was good at it. He was good at it. That's amazing. I always love with the expireds when I call them and they're like, oh my God, I, I hate real estate agents. You're the fifth one that's called me a day. I love to just kind of break the ice and be like, I know I hate real estate agents too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. We had, I was overhearing someone in the office calling yesterday, the day before on, on expireds. And he literally called somebody and he got off the phone and I go, well, how'd it go? And he was like, I think it went okay. He said I was. He, he said he didn't know his house expired. And I go, what? Hmm. I go, what did you say? And I go, where was his house at? And he told me and it was literally like three hours away, like just an area you never even would have thought to call. And I'm like, oh, well, no wonder it's in the middle of nowhere. And it dawned on me. I was like, wait a minute. I want you to call everyone in that town. If you have no competition, he didn't even know his house is expired. Maybe that's where it's at. Like maybe if he doesn't get 50 phone calls, he's getting one or two. Like your odds might be. Who cares if you're new, like your car drives anywhere? Like who cares where the listing's at in the beginning? So I just thought that was really funny. The guy literally is like, wait a minute, my house isn't on the market anymore. Oh yeah. My first list. So that sale that took me five months was in like the absolute sticks. I mean, it was, it was an hour drive outside of town in, yeah. the, in the forest basically. So <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's a good strategy to get started. Yeah. I mean, anything. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, so there was um, Oleg Bortman, who's a great agent out of the Phoenix area. He yeah. was on the podcast the other day and he was talking about how in the beginning he connected the fact that the paperwork is the same on a $40,000 deal and on a $4 million deal. They're the same paperwork, same contract. So if he can cut his teeth on these as many small deals as he can and get great at the process when that luxury opportunity comes, he's going to have the confidence to know he can do that transaction. That might be the way to go. What you're saying, like just call an out of the way place, get the experience. Yeah. I think in the beginning I I would literally, I'd list a dog house like five hours away. It wouldn't matter what it was. (laughs) And in the beginning, that's where a lot of people, like I mentioned before, like, Oh, you're crazy. Like that listing's never going to sell or you're crazy to do it for that commission. Like, are you, I would have told that seller to like take a hike it didn't matter to me in the beginning where the house was, what the price was, or what the commission was. And I know that sounds like the dumbest strategy, but if you can rack up 10 listings and maybe five of them sell, you're going to get leads off those other signs. You're going to be busy every day. It's going to, you know, it's going to kind of multiply just in itself. And guess what? In a year or two later, if that house doesn't sell and you do a good job, they're probably going to call you back to list it again. You know, so I think in the beginning, I mean, just 
getting any listing agreement signed is good. I mean, I wouldn't be picky about it. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Okay. So you're saying a year from now, they might call me back to sell something that brings up a really good question with a high volume model. Something that we struggled with for a long time was we were incredibly transactional where we had horrible, just, just being frank and honest, we had horrible client follow-up after yeah. the transaction yeah. closed and things would slip through our fingers. We'd see a house list and we're like, oh my God, that's, you know, that's Pam and Eric from down the street. We know yeah, yeah. How yeah. the heck are they listing with that guy? We sold them that house two years ago. Well, yeah. if you don't call someone for two years, yeah, you're not their guy anymore. Yeah. <laughs> how, how have you handled that? You know, that's a, that's a really good point. Cause I think we got into the same mindset where it was kind of mind boggling to us. Cause when someone calls us and hires us, like we're professionals, I'm going to be, I'm going to be available essentially almost seven days a week. Like I'm early to every single appointment. Our paperwork is clean. We have full-time staff handling everything. Like I'm a professional when you hire me and for almost all clients, we do a really good job and we get it sold. And then from there, it was like done. Like you almost just forgot about them. And it just like you said, you see a house get listed and you're like, what the heck? Like, we did a great job for them. Like, you know what I mean? But it was if you didn't stay in front of them or stay in contact with them, or if you maybe weren't that active on social media, it just sort of forgot about you. It wasn't that you did a bad job. I think we just probably like you guys weren't really using an effective CRM or following up them the way we should be, because there's an incredible amount of, you know, sales and volume that can come out of not just that listing, you know, what comes after that. So yeah, that's, we struggle with the same thing, to be honest with you. And, and a lot of ours started from, because we got into really heavy in the beginning, like bank listings. I think your brother may have mentioned that's kind of the direction he started. And after that, it became almost exclusively working with home builders. So we would joke that every single one of our clients had the same last name and that's LLC. But what that did was everything was transactional. You know what I mean? Like we're working with the bankers or asset managers or home builders. They don't want to be followed up with goofy follow-up material they don't you know so it's sort of ingrained in us like we're a professional firm this is what we do if people want to be treated as professionals and that's what we do but that's not really necessarily the case so much or doesn't sort of reproduce itself over to the whole resale world where the follow-up is just it's incredibly important yeah so i still need to up my game with that and do a better job in terms of training with that but we struggle with the same thing it's very easy to do in a high volume world i mean it's when things slip through the cracks all the time. So I had a client, this is really what, what shifted me was I had a client who said he came in off a Zillow call and he was like, Hey, I'm six months out from buying. And in my mind, I'm like, well, I've already forgotten you. I, <laughs> I, I have yeah. other things I need to sell today. I got to pay bills today. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, something inside of me just, uh, it was like a month later. It was like, Hey, you need to call that guy back. And so I called him and he goes, Hey, good news. Our timeline moved up. We want to oh buy now. God. Yeah. I ended up buying a $1.9 million house. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Right? Like it was a huge sale that I totally would have missed. Yeah. And then this was where the paradigm shift really happened for me though, is after closing, I followed up with him like five, six days later. And I said, Hey, how are you enjoying the house? Which I really wasn't doing prior to that. Yeah. And, and is there anything I can help you with now that I'm not making money off you? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, not, yeah. not in those words, but that was yeah. kind of my mindset is, uh, you know, where I'm not making any money, but let me see how I can help this guy and just genuinely serve him. And he said, you know, we really like this house, but the beach is really crowded here in this neighborhood. Yeah. I think we want another house. We want to keep this one, but we want another one that has a less crowded beach. He turned around and bought a, a $1.6 million house within like a month of closing on his other. Wow. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Totally would have missed that sale. Yeah, crazy. And if you just hadn't called him on a whim, it's uh, one thing I did for a long time, and I probably still need to keep doing this, was it was really common for me to go on a listing. And like you said, maybe somebody wasn't ready or they were six months out or maybe a year out or just sort of talking to multiple brokers. And for the longest time, like I would be super busy and, you know, every day I've got multiple appointments and then you see a house get listed and you're like, what the heck? Like, I didn't think it went that bad. Like, you know, what happened? So one thing with me was I just started keeping, which I think this is probably been being done for a long time, but keeping a big board of potential listings. And that board could have 15 to 20 houses on. And so whether it was, I should have a more systematic process for it, but any downtime I had, I would go over and look at that board and go, who have I not talked to in a while? And there is a lot of times, I bet you probably four times a year where that board got me a listing. And there's a lot of people go, oh, wow, you actually followed up at the perfect time. Like we were just going to list with, with so-and-so or so-and-so. Do you want to come back over and take a second look? We've done some updates. 
But that just having that board in general really definitely saved me. It was a visual thing. I didn't have to go on my computer and open a file or look for it. You, I was walking past it every day. So just that board kind of helped on the listing side. Some of those not fall through the crack, but. Yeah, that's amazing. I really, so we just transitioned to a new office and I want yeah. a giant whiteboard just for that purpose. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. I love that. And um, obviously a CRM is helpful with that because you can yes. set a task reminder in there and it'll just pop up. Yeah. Um, a mobile app that I love that I actually learned about at the Real Estate Rockstars Conference. Oh, wow. it, it, yeah. It's called Todoist. And it's, it's a, like an organizational app on your phone. Yeah. And anytime I've got a thing like that, that I need to remember, it's so easy because you can literally just type call Craig or whatever, you know, and you yeah, know what yeah. you mean. And yeah. you, can, you can set it for a date and you don't even have to go scroll through a calendar and pick the day. You can literally just be like one, you can type one week and it'll know what you mean. And it'll populate that in your inbox. That is awesome. I it's love fantastic. that. I, it yeah. makes my life so simple. I had it happen the other day. I, I would, I talked to a past client that's coming in town and it, this was a couple of weeks ago. They're in town right now, actually. Yeah. And I put it in my to-do list to call them two weeks from now when they were coming into town to set up a coffee appointment. Yeah. And I completely forgot, like totally would have never, ever remembered to call them. And yeah. it popped up in my inbox yesterday. I was like, thank God I made that reminder. Because yeah. otherwise, that's miss business. They're getting ready to list their house. I need oh, to be on top 100%. of that. How much money is crazy? Nobody could ever really put a dollar amount on it. But I, I don't know what amount of money that app could make somebody over a 10 year period. Yeah, it's, Imagine like, if you, it's yeah. like five bucks. I mean, it's yeah, be five cheap. bucks. To, I mean, come on. Yeah, five bucks. But well, it's crazy too because someone, you know, your initial interaction with someone may have been really good and they have every, every intention of using you when they go to transact. But unbeknownst to them or unbeknownst to us, we have no control or no idea of how many people get in their ear between now and like that one month later and now and that two months later. They might encounter four other brokers along the way. So there's never anything bad about you. There's They had all, all the intentions in the world of hiring you. You just, you know, both of you and the seller may have just underestimated how many brokers they would, you know, encounter in the meantime. And that's kind of where a lot of those are lost. So if you've got the follow-up, you go, oh, crud, wait a minute, that's right. We met with Caleb. Everything went great. Actually, we did intend to use him. Let's go ahead and just call him back or whatever. So I, yeah, that app is I mean, for $5. I mean, yeah. So here's the crazy part is it's, I, I read this, I think in the same place I read about that seven by seven study. And they said that on average, they, and they conducted a big nationwide study. On average, a buyer will take one year to make a decision on if they want to buy a house. Yeah. You know how many how many days of that year they spend choosing the broker they're going to work with? Is it a uh, is it one? One. You're exactly <laughs> right. And it's almost always the last one they talk to or the yeah. one they talk to the most. Yeah. And that's the thing a lot of times their experience with you was great. There's nothing wrong with it. You didn't do anything wrong. It was just that, you know, you didn't do enough follow-up or you didn't stay in front of them. That was cuz I mean just in our county that we're in, there's 9500 brokers. That's a lot of people. So yeah, it's just a matter of, and I need to continue to up my game with staying in front of people and staying active. So people to not let people forget about me, but yeah, that's huge. It's gigantic. It's been everything for me in scaling my business because it's allowed me to not constantly have to be on the grind of an expired list or something like yeah. that. It sucks the soul out of my body when I do it. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. Now yeah. I have like a, a client base that's warm and friendly and they know me. Yeah. And actually one of the biggest sources of referrals, and this shocked me when I learned this, they said one of the biggest sources of referrals on average is your deals, the clients that are under contract. Oh, interesting. Right now. Interesting. That's a great, that doesn't surprise me for some reason. I haven't heard that, but I think that makes a hundred percent sense because yeah, how is it going in the midst of things? Did you deliver on what you said you were going to do? You know, do you send things over in a clear and understandable you know, format? You know, are you easy to communicate with, you know, and, so yeah, no, that's a great point. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, so think about this too, right? What, what was the last car you bought? It was a Nissan Titan uh, right when COVID started. Okay, now since you bought that, how many Nissan Titans do you see? <laughs> I see them everywhere and I didn't see any before. <laughs> exactly. And so when someone's buying a house, they're thinking about houses. Yeah, that's a so great So what are the point. conversations, right? The conversations yeah. about houses. It's on their mind. And it's amazing too. Actually, that's a really good point. 
when, you know, it seems like if one neighbor puts their house up for sale and other people are talking about it, that person that's in contract with you can help push that other neighbor off the ledge. I'm like, hey, actually, it's not that scary. Just call Caleb. Just have Caleb come over tomorrow. Stop thinking about it. It's funny how big of an advocate they can be for you, especially when they're in the midst of it. And yeah, that's a great point. I like that. Yeah, that's that's that makes a ton of sense. So I just I was just the beneficiary of that very thing because I had this. Um, he's he's a great person, but he is like he was a tough customer. He was yes. very um, demanding, very <laughs> confrontational. Yeah. But, yeah. But, you know, very a nice man, but definitely a tough business person and, and yeah. expected results. And we ended up closing his lot and, and our market's insane because the land was one and a half million dollars. Wow. Yeah, just for the That's dirt. That's crazy. Yeah, it wasn't even on the beach. It was just it was like four or five houses back from the beach. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, yeah, it's nuts. But he I just got a call and I had a listing appointment today for a five million dollar Gulffront home. Because of that, he yeah. recognized, hey, you did what you said you were going to do. You worked hard for me. And he called his buddy in the midst of the transaction said, oh, you don't like your agent? You need to call Caleb. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, Thank God I did not quit on this listing because it was all worth it now. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. It's just amazing sometimes where the referrals come from. I mean, I've gotten referrals and I, I always tell people, even if you lose a listing appointment, which happens to all of us, how do you treat them when they tell you that you didn't get it? Because a lot of times if that first agent doesn't get the deal done, they're going to call you because of how they remembered. And I've lost listing appointments before. And I, I don't know what happened with the agent they hired. Maybe it went well, maybe somewhere in between. But then you get a referral from them. And you're like, what in the world? Like they didn't hire me, but they sent me a referral. So yeah, it's to be consistent with everybody and be a professional with everybody and have you know your follow-up and your communication and, and all that be so consistent and on point. Yeah, I think it's really important because people remember how you treated them. That's a phenomenal point, Dennis. And, and also with, with you saying to be a professional at all times, right? Yeah. I'll, I'll never forget this one listing. I lost it and I didn't think I should have lost it. And I totally wanted to act like a child oh, yes. about it and throw a tantrum. And um, I drove past the house one night and it was second home. So nobody was in town yeah. and all the lights were on. I thought, well, this agent can't even figure out how to turn the lights off. <laughs> and part of me thought, I was like, oh, I kind of want to call that son. be like, hey, just so you know, your lights are on. Yeah. And then I was like, dude, that's so low character. You are never, you're not going to do that. And so yeah. instead I called that agent and I said, hey, just so you know, all the lights are on at this house. And he yeah. goes, he goes, yeah, the sellers asked me to do that. They want it that way. And I thought, oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> thank God I did not do what oh the bad gosh. part of me wanted to do. Oh, I've been so tempted to do things like that. So I'm sure I have a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, no, great point though. Yeah. It's easy to do. Well, Dennis, I, I know we're, we're running long on time here. I want to be respectful of your time. So if people want to reach out to you and send you some Washington referrals or just connect cool. with you, where can they find you? Yeah, 100%. So uh, on Instagram, it's uh, Dennis, D-E-N-N-I-S dot M dot Folk, and that's F-O-L-K. And on Twitter, it's Dennis underscore Folk, and that's F-O-L-K. And folks can always shoot me an email too. That's just Dennis at Terrafin, T-E-R-R-A-F-I-N. RE.com. So Dennis at terrafinre.com. Yeah, please don't hesitate to reach out with anything. I love working with any agents, whether you have a referral or not. I'm always here. Well, wonderful. Hey, your wisdom is so appreciated. Your strategies are brilliant and they speak for themselves with your incredible transaction history, your wonderful business you're growing. Um, so we just so appreciate you sharing your time and knowledge. And I just shot you a follow on Instagram. I hope everybody will go out and do the same. Um, check out some of the wonderful content he's putting out and uh, real estate rock stars. This has been Caleb Spears and Dennis Folk, and we will talk to you next time. Thank you, Caleb. Thank you. All right. Real estate rock stars. This is Aaron Muchastegui jumping in again to thank you for listening to the show. Hopefully you guys loved listening to that one. And I want to make sure that you know about all of the extra resources that we have. And also we need your help. They say podcasts are free. You get to listen to podcasts for free. But what is the cost of that podcast? I would say if I could beg you to pay anything for that podcast, I would say the cost of the podcast is going and giving a review. 
So whether you download it on Google or Apple or YouTube or anywhere else, please go give us a review. Say what you liked, what you didn't like. It helps us get better guests. The more reviews, the higher we get in the rate rankings. Right now, we are the biggest podcast out there for real estate agents, and we want to keep that spot because we know there's lots of podcasts out there. So go give us a review. Also, be sure to go to hybendigital.com. If you liked any of the resources that those real estate agents talked about, we've got a huge video vault of those resources for free. Every penny that comes on the podcast that we interview, they give us something that helps them get their deals or helps them work with their clients, and we put that in the toolbox in our vault for you. So go to hybendigital.com and you can get it. If you're looking for real estate education, go to rebusuniversity.com. We have all sorts of courses in there to help agents succeed in real estate. How to get the listing, how to negotiate deals, you know, how to become an investor, all sorts of different stuff, rebusuniversity.com. And if you want to chat with me, go find me on Instagram. If you come find me on Instagram, you can send me messages. Tell me what you want to hear. Tell me what you liked, what you didn't like. We try to put a bunch of content out there, too. You can find me in two different places. It's at rerockstars.com for our Real Estate Rockstars page or at erinamuchastegui.com for my personal Instagram page where I can chat with you about all sorts of different things. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.